start off the sermon today, let's turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 1. This is a parable given by Jesus Christ. Verse 1 begins, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Verse 2, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So you get the picture. He's telling the story of a lesson of faith and persistence, which we all need. And not losing heart when we are seeking God in prayer. Going on in verse 6. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? There's a lot there. Christ is saying there's a lesson from the unjust judge in how we relate to God. Now, I think we all understand that the lesson is not that God is exactly like that judge. I think we... We understand that. If not, just good to clarify that. The judge, you know, is sort of annoyed with this woman. He's irritated. He's displeased with her. And we know God is not like that with us. The judge was unjust. He wasn't concerned about being fair in his dealings, his decisions. And we know God is not like that either. And thankfully so. The judge also was really actually trying to ignore her, just sort of too busy and just preferred that she would go away. And we know God is not like that either. So the lesson is if even a carnal, selfish, self-centered judge would intervene eventually out of her persistence, how much more our Creator our loving God, the one who who cares deeply for us. We know God is not like the unjust judge. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And yet, for sake of argument, let me just throw out a question today. Do we sometimes describe some of the same qualities of this unjust judge to our Father in Heaven? I know that sounds a little crazy, but... Think about it. You know, when we need help and we cry out to God and He intervenes, we are extremely grateful and thankful. And it's encouraging to know He's there. 
and He delivers us. We probably can all think of times in our life when God has intervened dramatically, and you know for certain, sometimes even when you didn't ask, but afterwards you know that God intervened. I think about <clears throat> the an experience I had as a small boy, three or four years old. I don't remember exactly, but one night I was awakened and and uh, as sometimes happens when you're very small, um, I was just sort of disturbed about lying in my bed awake in the dark, you know. You never know what monsters might be lurking under your bed or in the closet. So I got up and I wandered into my parents' room, and I don't know if they were awake already or if I woke them up. Probably I woke them up. And uh, I said, I can't sleep. And so I forget if it was my dad or my mother, but one or the other or both uh, talked to me a while and told me it's okay. There's no problem. You're going to be all right. Just go back to bed. You'll be okay. So about five minutes passed, and I went back in my room. And to my shock, I found a heavy Ten Commandments plaque on my pillow. It was made out of wood or stone or something, and... And um, I was a little shocked and a little bit concerned. Like, what if I'd actually been lying there? It was hanging on the wall just above my head. And uh, I, I, would it have killed me? No, I don't think so. But it surely would have bruised my face up and would have been a little traumatic, especially being knocked on the head by the Ten Commandments of all things, you know, (laughs) as a four-year-old or a three-year-old, or whatever. And so I'm convinced that maybe God knew it was going to happen, and maybe he disturbed me. Maybe he sent an angel to, to sort of disturb me and, and get up and wake up and go and leave the room for just about five minutes, and then it fell down. And I personally felt like that was really uh, encouraging to know that God was watching out for me, even at a small age. I also had a serious disease when I was very small, an infant, spinal meningitis, and was anointed for it and miraculously healed from it. So there are times in my life I'm convinced that God answered a prayer and fairly quickly and intervened. What about you? Think of the times you've had God's intervention. I'm sure many of us, young or old, can look back and have specific times when you've been specifically blessed and even quickly for something you asked for, maybe something you didn't even ask for yet. And afterwards, you're encouraged that God intervened. But what about a different scenario? What about when we cry out to God as He tells us to do day and night and there's no discernible answer? I say discernible because God is always answering. There are many times when there are different answers. Some yes, some no, some wait, some maybe. But when we really need an answer or help or intervention and no discernible answer and we wait and we pray and we wait and we pray and we wait some more and times goes by and we pray some more, 
and nothing discernible happens, then what? Have you experienced the challenge of waiting for an answer, a positive answer, to your prayers? I think most of us probably have. You know, sometimes it seems early in life or early in our Christian walk, we, we, it seems like we often receive quicker, more dramatic answers to some of our requests. Maybe to encourage us. My, my wife as a little girl, uh, <clears throat> when there were three siblings in their family, she wanted a little, little sister. So she began praying for a little sister. And uh, not long after that, I think her, her parents announced to the family that they were going to have a baby. And she said, I know. <laughs> I've been praying for a baby. And uh, so the baby came and uh, <clears throat> was born in the middle of the night. And her parents woke the family up and said... Uh, The baby's here, and it's a little girl. And she said, I know, because I prayed for a little sister. And, of course, at that point they said, okay, that's that's great, but please don't pray anymore. We have a a full house now, so, you know, sometimes kids, if you are praying for more people in your family, just check with your parents first. Make sure the plans are all sort of on the same page. But you know, early in life, and and oftentimes for children, it is that way, isn't it? Well, I've been praying for it. Of course he would intervene. Of course it happened because I prayed for it. And early on in our, let's say, our Christian walk, of course God intervened because I was praying about it. And I think sometimes God encourages us at that moment early on to say He's here, He's backing us up, He's with us. Later on, we might have to wait a little longer. Later on, He might test us a little longer as we grow and as our capacity for understanding grows and He wants us to grow in faith and patience with Him. And yet, sometimes when that happens, isn't it tempting for our view of God to change a little bit? When we don't have a positive, affirmative answer right away, or even after an extended time. And we can even ascribe some of the attributes of the unjust judge to God. We never think of doing when we feel close to him. Let's explore this a little bit. Because the test of the persistent widow is not for when things are going great. The test is for when we have to wait and there's no discernible answer. There are some traps we can fall into when positive answers don't come right away. Some assumptions assumptions we can make about God, and we're going to talk about a few of them today. If you want a title, Lessons from the Persistent Widow. Lessons from the Persistent Widow. One of the first assumptions we can make about God when we don't get an affirmative answer in our timetable in prayer is number one, we sometimes assume God is displeased with us. 
We sometimes assume God is displeased with us. Again, when our, when our prayers are answered right away in the affirmative and just what we need, just what we want, we're very appreciative. We thank Him. We feel close to Him. We feel like He's pleased with us. Maybe we don't exactly think of it exactly in those words, but that's the feeling we have. He's, he's pleased with us. I'm close to Him. After all, he answered our prayer with a yes and gave us the request we need. So what's the opposite reaction that can happen when we don't get a yes? Maybe he's not pleased with us. Maybe he's displeased with us. Maybe he's not happy with me, especially if the time drags on and on and we really need it and it seems to be within God's will. It doesn't seem to be outside God's will, but it's not happening. After all, the Bible is full of of cause and effect. Uh, Just in passing, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15 that God said, look, I've set before you life and good, death and evil, choose life. And sometimes when we're needing help and we're seeking God, we're telling God, I'm choosing life. I need this blessing. And it may not come at the time we need. Galatians chapter 6 sort of echoes this as well. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Galatians 6 and verse 7, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap Everlasting life, blessings and cursings. If we sow to the Spirit, we're going to be blessed. If we sow to the flesh, we will not be blessed. And so if we're seeking God, if we're not in rebellion against God, if we're obeying God and if we're following God, we expect blessings. But it's interesting that Paul says in the very next thought... Verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The same phrase that Christ used in Luke 18. To not lose heart. It's almost as if Paul is saying, anticipating the question, well, what if, what if I'm not blessed in the short term? What if things are not going that great in the short term? I'm I'm not getting the positive answer that I want. Should I assume God is upset with me? And he said, don't lose heart. When we are asking God for help, for intervention, for a blessing that that we need, we, we feel that we want, that is good, that is not wrong. It is not outside God's will. And yet we're not getting a yes answer. We, we should be examining ourselves. We should be looking at, okay, where am I in life? What am I doing? What am I seeking? And is there something that is that I, I'm not doing that, that would be outside of God's will? We should examine ourselves. We should always be examining ourselves, but especially... <laughs> If there's something we need, it's not outside of the general will of God that we would 
think of, and yet there's no discernible answer. It's a prod to ask maybe for help and for examination. Is there something standing in the way of God blessing me? Psalm 19 and verse 12. Psalm 19 and verse 12. David, David writes... Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. He's saying, Father, if I'm doing anything wrong, please show me. Please open my eyes. I want to know. I'm not wanting to shy away from it. And we should pray to God that way, cry out to God. And sometimes when there seems to be something holding back a blessing, maybe that gives us added urgency to pray in that way. God, is there something holding back from you that I'm doing from you giving me a blessing that I, that I need? Because we are wanting to be pleasing in his sight and not displeasing. Like it says in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Father, if there's anything that you're displeased with, please show me. And that's what we should do. Because we always have areas to learn and grow in, don't we? But again, get back to our main point. As we examine ourselves, brethren, what is our mental picture of God? That he's sort of far away? That his arms are crossed? He's disapproving? He's unhappy? He's sort of shaking his head at us? Like, I can't believe. I'm so disappointed in them. Is that our mental picture of God? He must be really upset with me. He said he'd promised to intervene in times of trouble, and he's not. And the more we dwell on it, the more we let it sit there, the more ingrained our mental picture can become that God has of us. Let's look at something in the book of Job. It's quite remarkable. <clears throat> Go back uh, just a few pages here to Job chapter 1. You know the story of Job, how he, early on in the book, he, he, lost, he lost everything he owned virtually. He lost all of his grown children who died in one day in a tragic and sudden death. And then he lost his health to a painful, debilitating malady. And if you didn't know the beginning of the story, you'd if you'd be in Job's shoes, you would not be, you know, judged harshly for, for thinking, surely God was unhappy unple- un- with him. Surely God was displeased with Job. Because look at all these things that happened. 
And yet it's fascinating to look at the beginning of the story in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Notice in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From whence do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Brethren, how did God look at Job? And would we ever come to that conclusion based on the latter part of chapter 1 and chapter 2? Would we ever come to the conclusion that God commended him so highly from the things that were happening to him in his life? I don't think we ever would. Naturally speaking, logically speaking, He hadn't offended God. There were things he needed to learn, absolutely. But brethren, how did God look at Job? You notice in the story of Job, after God commended him, what did Satan then, who entered the picture, after God commended Job, what did Satan do? Job chapter 1, verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan was trying to drive a wedge between God and Job. Now, what is a wedge? <clears throat> well, think about back in... Science, school, remember we learned about simple machines, wedges were one of them. A wedge is a, a block of perhaps metal uh, in the shape of a triangle, wide at one end, pointed at the other end, and that pointed end is driven into something else, isn't it? Maybe a block of wood to split the wood. And it's driven in with maybe a sledgehammer, and with each strike, as the narrow point of the wedge is driven into some other substance, the wider part inches closer and closer into the heart of that substance, doesn't it? And that thing starts to split. There's a powerful dynamic in a wedge. There's an explanation for how the ancient... Egyptians made obelisks. Now, not that we approve of uh, obelisks, of course. That's a totally different story. They were an ancient uh, fertility symbol. Not okay. Uh, <clears throat> but how they were made is pretty fascinating. Here is a uh, conference on fracture mechanics. I never knew that they had fracture mechanics conferences, but there was one in 2016 in Europe, and, and here is a document where they talked about how the ancient obelisks were made. First of all, they would find a huge piece of granite that might be 100 or 150 feet long, 
And then they would mark out places where they were going to drill holes along each planned side of the obelisk. And uh, here is how they sum it up in a paper. <clears throat> in ancient times, granite was so hard that the Egyptians' copper and bronze chisels could scarcely make a dent in it. So dolerite chisels had to be used to create wedge gaps in the rock. This may be done by a frictional process, a to-and-fro motion between sharp dolerite chisels and gap walls, and then wooden wedges then were fitted into the wedge gap, soaked with water, the wood expanding, and by applying moderately hard blows on the wooden wedges in turn, up and down the wedge line, the granite rocks split. Can you imagine wooden wedges? The power of a wedge and, of course, the power of water in the wood, which would expand the wood, it split granite. Brethren, how powerful is a wedge that Satan can get in there between us and God? Especially when we're in a vulnerable state, when we feel like he hasn't answered, God hasn't answered a prayer that we need in the affirmative. And one of those wedges is assuming God is displeased with us. Now, was God fooled by Satan's device? Of course not. God is not intimidated by Satan's psychological ploys, but we are more susceptible, and Job seems to have been fooled. What about you and me? Are you asking for God's deliverance in your life right now? Is anyone in that situation right now, maybe from a severe health trial, maybe something you've been dealing with for some time. Many of our brethren are, and, and sometimes they go on and on, and sometimes there's, there doesn't seem to be an answer for a long time. And sometimes it's very painful. Sometimes there's great suffering. Are you in that position? Are you discouraged? Wouldn't it be nice to know what God is thinking about you right now. Now, it's impossible to exactly know what God is thinking at any certain point in time, but the Bible does give us some examples of how God thinks about His people. Job was one of them. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. We find another one. Even under severe trials... When lessons were needing to be learned, look at how God thought about his people. In this case, we're going to look at, he's talking to a people who had just been taken into captivity. He's talking to a people who had been removed out of their land because of wickedness, because of how far, how low society had sunk. Now, not every last person certainly was a part of that. But when the Jews were taken captive into Babylon, the reason was because of law-breaking, because of disobedience. And yet what was the message to, to that group at large? What was God's message? What was He thinking about? How did He see them? Notice in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, For thus says the Lord, 
After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The message to the captives of a people who had been exiled from their land because of disobedience. Now, brethren, if that's the message to those people, what is God thinking about us who have been called out of this world who are walking this way, who have been given His Spirit, and our young people, perhaps not yet baptized, but certainly having an opportunity to walk with His Spirit. How how does He think about us? How does He think about us? When when we need help, when we need healing, when we need deliverance, how does He see us? If we're not healed right away, we can, we can form a mental picture of God that is all wrong. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Is God going around all the time displeased with you or with me? Now, if there is unrepented sin, we need to deal with that. You know, if we're living in rebellion, we need to deal with that. But if we are walking this way, if we are repenting of everything we are aware of, is God walking around every day being displeased? I don't think so. That is a wedge of Satan the devil. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. What about before we repent? What about before we're called? Surely that's when God would always be displeased with us, right? Well... Notice what it says in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Even before we were in a relationship with God, God loved us. God loved us. And He continues to work with us now. Again, if we need to repent, we need to repent. But we shouldn't assume that He is always upset with us, brethren. Just because we're not getting, perhaps an affirmative answer to a prayer. Let's turn over to Psalm 37, one more in this section here. When we have an obstacle in our prayers, when we feel like God is not answering, we can assume He's displeased, but we also need to ask, what is my view of God? Am I displeased with Him? Am I the one who's upset at Him? Could that be part of the issue? Psalm 37 and verse 3 is interesting in this regard. He says, verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, 
and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So we need to evaluate our view of God. Could we be complicating the issue by being upset with him, being hurt by him, and not resolving some level of hurt? So if we're sincerely asking for God's help, if we're examining ourselves, we're rooting out sin and still not getting a yes answer, be persistent. We must be persistent. We must not give up. We must keep praying. We must fight off the temptation to develop the view that God is always negative toward us. Because we can see very quickly in the Scripture that is not so. Maybe this is not an issue with you. Maybe other things are more the temptations to assume. And let's go to number two. Here's another one. When we're not getting a yes in prayer, number two, we... We sometimes may assume that God is unfair. We sometimes may assume that God is unfair. This is a big one. Especially if we've looked and looked and we've searched our hearts and we've been praying diligently, we've been crying out to God and we're not finding any glaring sin, knowing that we all sin, knowing that we all continually need to repent, and yet there's not anything glaring that is there. And we can fall into this assumption that, well, since God is not answering, God is not granting, God is unfair. Job chapter 7, we're going to pick on Job again. He's just has so much to offer in this light. What a profound and tremendous story that's been recorded for all of us. Job fell into this assumption. Job allowed Satan to drive this wedge to a certain degree. And look at what he said, some statements. Job chapter 7, verse 20. After he lost all his children, after he lost virtually all his wealth, after his health went down the tubes, and he probably thought he was going to die, wanted to die, even his wife was cursing him. You know, what was he saying? What was he thinking? How did he view God? Well, Job chapter 7, verse 20. He said, Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me up as a target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Why, God, why? Why Why have you set a target on me? What have I done to you, God? Job chapter 10 and verse 14. Verse 14. If I sin, then you mark me. He's talking to God again. And will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. Job is saying, look, it doesn't even matter. If I'm righteous, I'm going to get the same result. God, you're not fair. Job 13, verse 15. 13, verse 15. Notice another statement. Job 13, verse 15. 
He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He's saying, you know, God might even execute me. He may take my life, and I'll still trust him. But if he does it, he's doing it unfairly, because I'm still right. Verse 18c, now I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? Brethren, do we fall into this? Maybe not saying these exact words. Job is pretty blunt here. Or maybe sometimes in a moment of frustration, we, we do say some things fairly close to this. God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? I don't understand. What am I doing? And this doesn't seem fair. Because I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. You know, I recall my brother who died some a few years ago when he was uh, had a brain tumor, and he'd had it for 16 years, and he had had it removed a number of times in uh, surgery and, and had other treatment. Um, but, you know, toward the end, it was clear it, it was going to take his life. And I was talking to him one time, and I said, Peter... How do you handle the why question? When you're praying to God, how do you handle the why question? And he said, you know, Rod, I just don't go there. There's no answer. That's a dead end. You can't ask that question. And yet, you know, he died at 46. He got it in his early 30s. Why did he get that and, and I didn't? My other brother didn't get that. He left four children behind, two of them still in their teens when he died. Why? You know, if you go down that path, the conclusion sometimes can be, well, it's just not fair. But if we allow that root to grow, if we allow that question to enter into our mind, God is not fair... It will take root, and it will affect our prayers, and how close are we going to be to God if we're praying to someone that we don't feel is fair? How persistent will we be in our prayers if if we don't think God is fair? We might go through the motions for a while, but God is not fair turns into its counterpart, woe is me. I'm the victim. And we start basking in our own self-pity, and what a dangerous spiritual cancer that is. I feel sorry for myself. I'm a victim. You know, today in our society, the whole idea of being a victim is sort of a national pastime. More and more people today, more and more of us, we, we fall into it because it's a part of our our thinking so many times today. There's even a psychological model called the drama triangle. And it describes the interactions of three characters. This model was developed in the 1960s. It includes the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. 
And the model describes so many situations that we find ourselves in as, as people. There's an interesting article from the Epic Times in January 17th of this year entitled, Breaking Free of the Victim Mentality. It says, Do you ever find yourself in a perpetual series of interactions with someone that lead to anger, guilt, and other painful emotions? You may be caught in a social game on the drama triangle. The roles of victim, persecutor, and rescuer are in this drama triangle. While people tend to start off in one of the roles, the roles shift during dramatic conflicts, and we may find ourselves in any of them. The victim is the key role in the drama. The advantage of being the victim is that other people are obligated to take care of this person who can't take care of himself. It isn't his fault because someone else is to blame. And there's nothing he can do about it. This is a tempting position to hold because the victim deserves care and support from other people and thus doesn't have to take responsibility for the situation. And the article goes on and says sometimes then as the situation develops, the the roles change and, and we play different roles at different times. Can we sometimes see ourselves as a victim and God as the unfair persecutor? Now again, we may not put it in those words, but in the back of our mind, can that happen? Because we're so focused on our specific situation, it obscures the rest of the picture. You know... When we have problems, our problems are real. Job's problems were real, weren't they? He really did lose his children. He really did lose his health. He really did lose his material wealth. But he also saw himself as a victim. God is not fair. And until that changed, he was stuck. His friend Elihu cut through the fog. Let's go back to Job chapter 33 now. Job 33. And this is a true friend. He said uh, in Job 33, I'm sorry, in chapter 34. Chapter 34 of Job. And verse 5. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water? Who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? He's saying, look, because of the the way he's thinking, it's like he's walking with the wicked men. For he has said, verse 9, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Verse 10, therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely, verse 12, God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Verse 17, should the one who hates justice govern? Elihu said, Job, think this through. 
Will you condemn him who is most just? It is, is it fitting to say to the king, you're worthless? What he was saying was that he needed help to really see God. Now I think we all understand that in the big picture, in the macro sense, and in the theoretical sense, we, we all know that God is always fair. But sometimes when it's no longer theoretical, sometimes when it's something affecting us and we need help and help doesn't seem to be coming, that's the time when we're vulnerable and Satan can drive that wedge. If we allow that thought into our mind, God is not fair. What we're saying is we really don't know God. What we're saying is that we really need to get to know God better. And that's where God is working. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 says, There is no partiality with God. Of all the beings in the entire universe, the Father and the Son are the ones who are without partiality. James chapter 1 and verse 16. Let's turn over there. James chapter 1 and verse 16. By definition, God is righteous. God is fair. God is equitable. God is a God of justice. And thankfully, mercy. He goes beyond just being fair. He's merciful. He's forgiving. James chapter 1 and verse uh, 16. James writes, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. There's not even a hint of unrighteousness in Him, and that's why we can depend on Him. Has there been ever a time in your life when you've asked help, asked a blessing, asked for deliverance, and it didn't happen? And maybe you even look around and you see others who are getting that very blessing. You know, maybe it's deliverance from my financial trial. Maybe that's the difficulty, and you really need help. And maybe you're tithing faithfully. Maybe you're seeking God with all your heart. And those certainly are the the first things to look for uh, if finances is a difficult issue. But maybe, maybe you're still not being blessed even after all those things, like person A over here, right? That is a vulnerable moment. That is a moment when Satan is trying to drive that wedge. And we have to understand that we don't know that person's full situation. Maybe they are being blessed in that way, but maybe in other ways we are supremely more blessed than they are. Maybe they would love to have our situation in other aspects of our life. And yet it's hard to see that. But even apart from that, you know, if we're focused on what someone else has that we don't 
We're not going to be drawing close to God to find out what specific and what special blessing He has for us in this case. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And maybe God is waiting to give us something special, something specific. And maybe that gift, beyond the thing we're asking for, financial perhaps, is coming closer to Him in a special way. Getting to know Him better in a special way, in a way that we have never in our life. Taking one closer step to being in His kingdom. Overcoming an obstacle in our mind that is making us not be close to Him. And maybe that's the special and specific gift that God is wanting to give us. They have to be persistent. And if ever we're tempted to think that God is not fair, we've got to pull that wedge out of our brain. It's like we're walking around with a wedge stuck in our brain that Satan is driving because God is fair. Always. Ezekiel chapter 18, we won't turn there, but... Just to make reference to it, uh, the children of Israel were telling, saying that God was not fair, but God turned it around and said, look, my way is more than fair. And frankly, it's a step beyond that. It's forgiving. When the wicked turn away from their wickedness, I forgive them. How's that for being even beyond fair? Read it sometime for yourself. It's pretty fascinating. Brethren, the the mercy and love and caring and kindness and forgiveness of the one we serve is so great, we must not get caught in the loop, the cancerous loop of thinking God is not fair. Because that can hold us back from really drawing close to God. Whether it's a healing, whether it's a new job, whether it's a mate wanting a mate, uh, wanting a husband or a wife uh, to guide us and to be with us in our life. Whatever it is that we're seeking after and that we're not getting yet, let's never allow Satan to put that wedge in our mind, because that will separate us from drawing close to God. Notice in back in Job, let's look at the end of the story here. When Job was talking about his situation, finally Elihu talked to him, and then God talked to him directly. And God spoke to him in a whirlwind, and he said, you know, Look, Job, I'm God. I made you. I gave you breath. I keep your heart beating. You live because of me. You owe your life to me. I owe you nothing. Yet I keep you alive. I gave you life, and through the death of the the Savior, I'm going to give you forgiveness. And think about it. The one who was talking to Job, the Word, was the one who knew Years down the road, he personally was going to give his life. Come down to earth, live in the flesh, be arrested, be spit upon, be mocked, be beaten up, 
be scourged and be crucified for Job, who thought he was not fair. What's fair? What's fair? And yet God wanted Job in his kingdom so much that he was willing to let him go through suffering in order to learn some powerful lessons. The end of the story, Job chapter 40 and verse 3. Job chapter 40 and verse 3, after uh, he had spoken these words and then Elihu had spoken and then God had spoken to Job, then notice what Job says in chapter 40 and verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. You notice his situation hadn't changed, but his, his view of God had changed dramatically. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Smart move, Job. Job 42 and verse 5. A page later, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know, verse 2, you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, verse 3, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. Verse 5, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What was God looking for? What was God hoping for? That Job, through this, would come to know God better. That Job, through this situation, would come to see God more clearly and understand who he is and have a relationship with him and be face-to-face with him, so to speak. And that happened. And that happened. And it all changed. Brethren, God wants us to know him like that. And sometimes when there are obstacles in our ability to see him, God will allow us to be tested. And thank God for that. He might even allow us to wait for something we're asking for, wait for something we even need desperately to learn that powerful lesson of coming to draw closer to Him. Not run away from Him, not pull back from Him, not accuse Him of being displeased with us or being unfair with us, but draw near to Him to understand Him more. And find out, what do I need to know more than I'm missing, Father? And even cry out and ask for that help. Let's remember, let's not assume that God is not fair. He cannot be unfair. He never will be unfair. And the more we seek Him and walk with Him, the more we see that. Last point, last assumption that we have to watch out for. Maybe the other two don't bother you. Maybe this one does. Maybe there none of these do. Maybe there are other things that sometimes we can assume about God when we don't have a yes answer. But here's the third one. We sometimes assume that God isn't interested or doesn't care. When we don't get a yes answer in our prayers, do we sometimes assume God isn't interested or doesn't care? Well, that can be a stumbling block. Again, why would he even notice us? 
Maybe as a young person. You know, I'm just a kid. Why would he hear my prayers? I'm not important. All the things that he has to do in this universe, like keeping the whole universe running, like keeping all the planets spinning and rotating and orbiting and stars burning and all kinds of things going. If you're a young person, don't, don't think that way. Start praying to God. He cares about you. He sees you. He notices you. <clears throat> Ask for help. I remember starting to pray for help with my school assignments, a speech, which was terrifying. I really needed help for that. Or a report. Or if I lost something, I remember losing a watch outside. And... Uh, praying about it, and, and uh, found it the next day, and it was still ticking. It was a Timex, for any of you who remember. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. I also remember more recently, a few years ago, <clears throat> we were working outside doing some work, and I had gloves on, and uh, our, the dog had gotten a hold of the gloves, and one of the fingers had been ripped off, and but I was using it because the rest of it was okay, and the finger just happened to be my ring finger that had no, no glove on the finger. No, no finger on the glove, sorry. And so we're working, and a little while later I noticed my ring was gone, my wedding ring, and because there was no finger on that glove. And I thought, oh, no. We've been working outside. This could be anywhere. So... Our kids were with me, and uh, I said, let's, let's gather around, let's pray about it. And uh, we prayed right there. And I also said, I'll give anyone a dollar who can find my ring. <laughs> and Tressie found it in the, in the grass. Amazing! Can you imagine finding a ring in all the grass in your yard? And yet, we found it. Does God care about the little things <clears throat> Turn over to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 27. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 27. This is the story of Elijah when he was going against the uh, prophets of Baal. And uh, we won't look at the whole story, but you know what was happening here. And, and uh, he told them to go ahead and offer their offering. And, and they were crying out to Baal. But he didn't seem to be answering. And so finally, in uh, verse 27, 1 Kings 18, So it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. He was mocking them. Now, <clears throat> we are not serving Baal. I understand that. Baal was not a personal being. We serve a real and personal being. But that being is really busy, has a lot to do, and sometimes we might sort of unconsciously, I don't think we do it consciously, but we might think, well, he, he's got a lot to do. Why would he hear me? Why would he notice me? Why would he listen to me? Well, because he's working out a plan that involves every single one of us on the minutest level. That's why he would listen to us and hear us and notice us. Even young people. You know, sometimes we can feel very strong in one situation, like Elijah was here when he was going up against the prophets of Baal. 
confronting these prophets, being faithful to God. And as soon as that was over, you know the story, Jezebel threatened him and he ran for his life. And he said, he despaired of life. He said, God, take my life. I don't want to live any longer. Just let me die. You know, we all have weak points, don't we? We all have vulnerable points, and sometimes we feel vulnerable. Maybe God wants us to feel that so we understand our need for Him. And maybe that's why God used a widow back in the parable that Christ gave. One of the things about being a widow, I don't know this from personal experience, but is what I've been, what I've observed. Okay. You're at a time in your life when you don't have a husband to take care of you, so you're more vulnerable. You're having to depend on others more than before, perhaps, in your life. You know, the widow in the parable was needing that unjust judge to intervene. She had no other options. We have many widows among us. And we love and appreciate them. And we look at their example of faith. And we see that in a time of their life when they are more vulnerable, we see them walking in faith. And that's very encouraging to us. Showing a level of trust and faith in God as their protector, their provider, when they don't have a husband to take care of them in that time of life. And we can learn from them. Maybe God allows all of us to sometimes go so far on our own strength and exhaust all the possibilities and try all the doors and all the options and we're backed into a corner that says, trust me, depend on me. And we feel vulnerable like that widow. Well, brethren, don't ever think that God doesn't care for us, even if we're not getting a yes right away. He's watching. He's helping us. And Satan the devil is the one who's trying to drive that wedge, thinking God doesn't care about you. What does it say in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29? Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29. Jesus said, Are there are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. God knows us inside and out. He knows what we need. He knows exactly what we need every moment of our lives. Second Peter chapter five. Second Peter chapter five. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober. I'm sorry, uh, verse 6. Verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Do we believe that? Do we need to be reminded of that? Or do we believe the lies that Satan is telling? God does not care for you. Brethren, if we have a hard time believing that, that's what we need to pray about. 
Maybe, maybe the specific thing we're asking for is important, but maybe even more important is if we have a hard time believing that God cares for us, really cares for us, maybe that's what we need to pray about more and cry out to God. Notice what Peter said in the very next thought in the context here. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Why does Peter talk about Satan, the devil, in this context? Because he's trying to get us, Satan is, trying to get us to have a wrong perception of God. He's trying to get us to think that God does not care for us. He's trying to get us to think God is displeased with us when maybe He's not. He's trying to get us to think that God is not fair when God is never unfair. And He's trying to get us to think that God is not interested. Isn't it ironic Satan is trying to get us to ascribe the attributes of that carnal, unjust, and selfish judge to our Father. Think about it. And sometimes we fall for it. I'd like to read a little bit from Dr. Meredith's booklet, Twelve Keys to Answered Prayer. There's so many helpful things in this booklet. If you're struggling in your prayer life, if you're struggling... In any of these things, please read this booklet. It may be just what you need to get over the hump. He says, key eight, be persistent. He says, God wants to know that we deeply desire whatever we ask for and that we will respect and worship Him for answering our prayer. In other words, God uses our need or desire as a vehicle to draw us closer to Him spiritually, to cause us to focus on His will and on what is really best for us and for any others who might be involved. If we allow ourselves to to get discouraged, we're going to go the opposite way. But the whole reason why God is, is testing us is to help us to draw close to Him. He says the true church is pictured as the affianced bride of Christ. We need to spend a lot of time with Him and with the Father to become deeply acquainted. Remember, what we do in this life prepares us to spend eternity together with these two divine personalities. So pray regularly. Spend plenty of time communing with Jesus Christ and your Heavenly Father and never, ever stop praying to God for in more ways than one, your very life depends on that contact. What is God really looking for? He wants a relationship with us. He wants to know us. He wants us to know Him. He wants to be close to us. He wants us to be in His family. And that's the priority He has whenever we are making a request. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32 and verse 24. This is a great story, great passage I love here in Genesis The passage about Jacob wrestling with God. 
I was going to name this sermon Persistent Widows Wrestling with God, but it just didn't really seem to, you know, seem to fit. I don't know if our widows really sort of, you know, connect with wrestling so much as, as the guys. Genesis 32 and verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Verse 26, and he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Brethren, are we being persistent like Jacob? Not pushy, not arrogant, not demanding, but persistent. And when we feel like we don't have an answer that we're asking for, it's not the time to let go. That's the time to hang on. That's the time to be more tenacious. That's the time to ask for a blessing. And the blessing might not be what we are originally asking for. The blessing might be something else. And only God knows what is best for us. The blessing might be in a being more close to Him in a profound way like we've never been before. That is a blessing. Verse 27, So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. In verse 30, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Brethren, God wants us to seek His face. He wants us to look Him in the eye. He wants us to wrestle with Him and not give up when we need His help. He wants us to not allow the wedges of Satan the devil to drive us away from Him. Are we learning the lesson of the persistent widow? Let's go back to Luke 18, and we'll close there. Luke 18. Again, it's, it's not hard to be persistent when things are going great, and we get an answer right away. It's more challenging when we have to wait. And God is answering our prayers. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait, sometimes it's maybe. Sometimes it's I have something so great for you to learn. I want you to focus on this other thing for a while. And we need to listen to that. Luke chapter 18 and verse 6, The Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge says. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? He is the one who's bearing long with us. He's the one who's struggling with us because he knows if there's something we need, if there's something that is, is separating us from him, that is a struggle for him. That's not what he wants. So he's bearing with us. And he's thinking, what can I do to help my child right now the most? And we've got to be sensitive to that and asking for that. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. And 
When God moves, he moves, doesn't he? When God intervenes, there's no doubt. And we can look back in our life and see the times that God has moved. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? That's the challenge for us. Let's make it our goal that no matter what we face, no matter how we suffer, that we put our hand in God's hand. We never allow Satan to drive a wedge between us and God, to assume that God is like a man, like that unjust judge. When Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our Deliverer, is coming soon. He's coming soon. And God, our Father, is preparing us for that time. Brethren, let's do our part. Let's seek his face to make sure that when he returns, he does find faith and trust in his faithful, persistent people.